This is Dr. James Crosby, Head of Sustainability at Advantage Utilities. I'd like to ask, could your organisation be more of an energy sector hero? Are you interested in improving your sustainability as a business? Well, now you can obtain the expert view and guidance on renewable energy solutions, on-site generation, carbon accounting, and sophisticated grid energy purchasing options through Advantage Utilities. Our team of experts use the latest tools to better analyse, track and reduce your organisation's energy usage and carbon emissions. To find out how Advantage Utilities can become your one-stop shop for all your energy and sustainability needs, please visit www.advantageutilities.com or give one of our passionate and friendly team a call on 0208-131-4747. Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Tony Maplesden. Tony is an incredible consultant. Tony, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Uh, Yes, that's fine, Michelle. Thanks for the opportunity to take part in your program. I've been privileged to work with uh, the trading board for quite some years now. Whilst I was working prior to retirement in uh, Aberdeen up to 2015, I uh, held the position of regional chair uh, for the offshore region with uh, with ECITB. And I was also um, an ECITB board member for a while. Following that, 2016, after I, after I formally retired, I was given the opportunity to uh, work with them as a part-time consultant on the development of the Project Collaboration Toolkit which has been put to use within the industry uh, for some years now, piloted and uh, applied across a number of projects. And I've been working really in uh, support of um, you know, the application of the uh, collaboration toolkit within the uh, UK industry. Okay, that sounds amazing. What is the project collaboration toolkit? Well, <clears throat> to give you a little bit of background, you know, to help understanding, At the end of uh, 2014, of course, you know, most of your listeners will be familiar with the the oil price crash that occurred at that time. And the the offshore energy sector was really plunged into crisis as a result of that. Earlier in 2014, Sir Ian Wood had been commissioned by UK government to produce his uh, MER report, Maximising Economic Recovery. And Serene's report mentioned the the, uh, the real need for in, in increased collaboration within the industry. And of course, he meant mainly collaboration between uh, client owner operators. But I think uh, his report really implied that collaboration, including collaboration in project delivery, was really um, you know quite necessary. So at the end of 2015, uh, ECITB staged a project management conference in Aberdeen. And when all of the delegates to that conference were asked how they would go about improving collaboration on projects within the uh, the industry, the resounding message came back that um, project practitioners really needed some guidance to work with. 
on, on how to uh, move in that direction. So that was the uh, the idea uh, that generated the uh, development of the uh, project collaboration toolkit. We started, um, you know, drafting the toolkit in uh, early 2016, and then it was launched in its first edition uh, in August of that year. Okay. So how does the project collaboration toolkit actually work? How does it benefit the industry? It, it, it really uh, is, is a set of guidance tools that follows the... Um, the path of a, of a typical project life cycle. So whereas, um, you know, most projects will have processes and procedures that are followed, th- you know, throughout a, a life cycle, the, um, the project collaboration toolkit really maps to that. It, it isn't additional uh, procedure and process. It's more guidance on how to develop the right kind of relationships and the right behaviours to uh, encourage collaboration between the, uh, between the delivery parties. So... If, if an organization wants to use it uh, in its entirety, you would expect it to be applied in the very early stages of project development, you know, the period which we would normally think of as front-end loading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a very important phase because it actually uh, gives the, uh, the project lead entity, the client in many cases, and the other partners to the project the opportunities to, to start working together uh, and developing some, uh, you know, some trust between the uh, between the organisations involved. So, so that's um, the first part of the uh, or the first phase of the uh, project collaboration toolkit. As the project moves on into uh, startup, the guidance that the toolkit provides then generally moves towards uh, guidance which is directed towards individuals and. Um, if you like, interpersonal relationships, the kind of relationships that you would want to encourage within the uh, within the project team. Third phase, moving on in the life cycle, really covers execution and, and the theme associated with the guidance and tools in, in uh, phase three is really all about an integrated team approach. So it's about getting the, uh, the parties to the project to work uh, on a single path, if you like, um, to eliminate any inefficiency and, um, you know, to, uh, to manage important topics like health and safety and quality and uh, even the control of the project, to manage those with a one-team mentality. Uh, whereas on conventional project approaches, there's a tendency to get quite a bit of duplication and overlap within those, uh, within those areas. Final phase of the toolkit, phase four, is really about closing out the project in an appropriate way, so picking up the lessons learned and very importantly for uh, collaborative undertakings, really kind of um, driving an understanding of how the, uh, the experience could actually help and improve the approach on uh, a future collaborative project strategy. Okay, but then is it quite, is it quite difficult to create a, a team where everybody's working unified together? It, it is quite difficult, Michelle. It makes... Uh, it, it requires a big big commitment up front from uh, from those who are going to be involved. So it isn't an easy uh, path to take. But um, I think the benefits that we've actually demonstrated from projects that have worked collaboratively and applied the toolkit will probably far outweigh the uh, the effort and energy that is required up front to uh, to get the collaboration to uh, to come together. Okay, so. What type of companies would, would normally uh, collaborate together then? Well, our experience is we, we piloted the uh, collaboration toolkit on a number of projects 
in the uh, the offshore energy sector. You know, one particularly was uh, one of the uh, project scopes for the Brent decommissioning program. So the organisations have worked together collaboratively for the uh, preparation for topside removal on Brent Bravo, where the client, of course, Shell, you know, the owner operator, would, you know, as the um, the managing contractor and stock technical services who were the um, uh, the services provider, you know, access, you know, cleaning and other services for the uh, the platform preparation. Shell Wood and Stark had previously had experience of preparing the uh, the delta top sides for uh, removal and disposal, uh, so there was a bit of a track record there. But the results on the um, top sides preparation on Brent Bravo were nothing short of remarkable. Really, a very very significant uh, reduction in the schedule time required to prepare for single lift removal, a very very significant reduction in cost. Uh, and some pretty innovative approaches to, um, you know, solving some of the problems that were encountered along the way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you were saying before that uh, not work that normally if you don't follow the the um, project collaboration talk that you can have a lot of duplications. What duplications can you actually get? Well, I think typically on projects, and and this has been the case for uh, for quite some years, Michelle. On conventional project approaches, it's been quite common for, you know, client owner operators to put pretty big teams together with a lot of uh, role duplication and man marking of, um, you know, people in the, uh, you know, the contractor's delivery team. So it's a pretty inefficient approach. And I think it's because um, historically within uh, the energy sector, a lot of our um, client organizations have been looking to have both competition and control in the way they've actually, um, you know, tendered and, and let contracts for uh, project-related work. But there's generally been a bit of an absence of trust, I think. So client organisations have actually teamed up to, uh, you know, have uh, expertise, within, which in a lot of cases duplicates the capability that exists elsewhere. Uh, and of course, in the present times, with a huge challenge ahead of us on energy transition, you know, the sector really can't afford to, um, you know, to continue with, you know, those kind of inefficient uh, approaches. And it, it really needs to be looking at uh, different and better ways of improving, you know, project outcomes and delivery performance. Okay. But that's, a, okay, that sounds amazing. Do you think that there is a lot of difference between running a conventional project no, I think it's, um, you know, the, the real core issue is, um, you know, sort of getting the right kind of, uh, you know, collaborative uh, behaviours and the right kind of relationships. You know, it comes naturally to some organisations and to some people, but it, it doesn't come uh, quite as easily to people who've been around within the industry for, uh, you know, for a long time, I think. You know, it all boils down to uh, to culture at the end of the day and, uh you know, culture is a very, very difficult thing to shift without an awful lot of effort and energy. And I think my my belief is that, um, you know, because of some of the challenges that we're facing at the moment, there is a lot of interest now in, um, you know, taking different approaches and perhaps, you know, using collaborative strategies to uh, deliver some of the, the challenging projects and programs that are ahead of us. But, you know, the rate of change is quite slow, really. And and they'll probably uh, pick up pace within uh, you know within the coming years hopefully. 
But then do you really think that, I mean, depends who you're collaborating with as well. But I remember have, working for a company many, 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 many years ago. We had a collaboration of two contractors, but the contractors were direct competitors of each other. And it was quite difficult to, for them to work together. I mean, they did work together, but um, it was it was quite difficult at times, I think, so to bring the project ahead. Yeah, no, I can understand that, Michelle. I think uh, in those circumstances, you know, if there were organisations that, uh, you know, would normally be competitors within the marketplace, it would be very, very difficult for them to take up a position where they would actually open up, you know, to the other party and, um, you know, sort of work in a, in a generally open and... Uh, and sharing away. But, you know, just, just back to, I'll give you an example of um, a conventional project that I worked on in uh, the period between 2005 and 2008. So at that time, I was the uh, the project director for a tier one contractor working a, a retrofit project for a, a coal-fired power station uh, in the UK. So this was one of a number of uh, projects that uh, were targeted at improving emissions. So it was a flue gas desulfurization project. The client had uh, actually put together a, a fixed price lump sum contract tender. And it was quite obvious that the tender package included quite a lot of risk that was transferred, you know, from the client to the, um, you know, the potential contractor associated with things like site conditions and ground conditions. I worked on that project and uh, had a, a very, very stark reminder of, of how difficult it can be, you know, sort of working projects in that kind of environment. I think to the great credit of, um, you know, uh, my organisation, the contractor, we managed to deliver the project broadly to schedule, but there was a massive fallout in terms of uh, variations in scope and uh, claims and legal action. And, and sadly, I think that kind of approach you know, not just within, uh, you know, that part of the industry, but generally the insistence on um, transactional type contracts uh, with a lot of transferred risk and very little attempt to try and get the parties working towards common objectives, you know, quite often ends up in um, adversity and, uh, and conflict. So as I say, it was a very, very, uh, very, very tough experience for me and um, I think the organisations involved. And I think that probably um, renewed my commitment to uh, look for different and better ways of uh, for managing to deliver projects successfully. Yeah, but then how do you resolve conflict between uh, two companies that are working together? That must be really hard, though. Uh, it, it is, but I think if you um, you know if you approach bringing together a collaboration in the very early stages of the project. You have a little bit of time to actually um, communicate between the parties and develop the foundation of trust that you really need. And the key to it, I think, is to get alignment between all of the parties to a set of goals and objectives that everybody can identify with and, and take ownership for, really. And I think once you've, once you've reached that stage, you can probably look towards handling the uh, ensuing work on, on almost... Um, uh, a dispute-free basis. You know, the, the the parties to the project, if there is a uh, an issue arises, will probably sort it out themselves rather than actually have to take recourse to the contract and to, uh, uh, and to the legal framework. Yeah. Okay. 
But a lot of the companies do sometimes have to take uh, legal action against each other. It is quite difficult not to. I mean, how do you even resolve that, though? Um, well, you know, as I said, there isn't a, the, the, the probably isn't a magic answer to it, uh, Michelle. And um, you know, collaboration isn't a guarantee that projects are going to actually run successfully. But I do think that. I've seen enough of the um, the benefits that uh, collaborative strategies can uh, deliver to know that you know taking that approach and putting the effort that is necessary into setting up a collaborative uh, project is probably um, you know going a long way towards avoiding really serious fallouts and uh, conflict between you know between the delivery uh, partners. Yeah. Okay. You've sat in a couple of boards though. Yeah. I just wondered, is it challenging to do that? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, Michelle. It's um, it is a challenge. It needs effort and a, and a lot of uh, a lot of energy. I think the uh, the basic requirement is to you know for uh, an organisation to enter into an effective collaboration, the organisation has to be satisfied that it's going to meet its business objectives mm. through achieving the common objectives of the project. And I think if you can get into that position, you're on the uh, you're on the winning path. And the way to get there is all about uh, very early dialogue. I think between uh, you know the organisations involved. Um, if any one of the organisations in a potential collaboration takes up a position of self-interest, then that can very very quickly destroy the um, you know the basis of trust that you really want to develop to uh, to get things working uh, the way you want to. Yeah. Okay, so what kind of tasks do you have to do as a as a board member then? What on a collaborative project? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, in the early stages, you'd expect that um, because of the um, you know the resistance that is likely to exist within all organisations through culture and uh, and past practice, you really need to identify somebody who's going to champion the cause. So identifying and uh, you know putting somebody in the position of collaboration champion is probably a, a sensible first step i think each of the organizations has to uh, do a very realistic self assessment of where it thinks it is in terms of its capability to um, you know to collaborate and i think as you were um, you know questioning earlier some organizations who've been around in the industry for a long long time might not be in a very good position in terms of their uh, ability to get into uh, collaboration because they've probably been steeped in um, you know practices that relate to uh, delivering their own business objectives without too much consideration of uh, what impact that might have on on others. So a, a collaborative capability self-assessment would be another uh, sensible step. The toolkit talks about you know a, an event. Which doesn't have to be a you know a, a, a big conference event, but it's it's called a stakeholder management conference, and the purpose of that is to really get representatives, leadership representatives from all of the organisations who are going to be involved around the table to start talking about objectives. You know what mm-hmm. what the objectives of the project are, whether those objectives and the way that they're actually. Um, the, the way that they're languaged and uh, structured can meet the requirements of all the uh, the organisations that need to participate. What sort of behaviours and relationships are uh, you know each of those parties looking to uh, develop? Contracting strategy. So 
if you're going to go into a collaborative undertaking, it would be quite sensible to you know enter into a kind of um, contract framework that supports the collaboration. So a kind of uh, risk benefit framework where the parties are willing to uh, take a reasonable and proportional share of the project risk for the potential benefit of uh, a share in the upsides if the project succeeds. You know, that kind of arrangement as established within the contract would be, um, you know, the kind of um, arrangement that you'll be looking for. Uh, although having said that, lots of the projects that the, uh, the toolkit was piloted against really kind of stuck with pretty straightforward um, conventional contract forms and, and still um, identified uh, some uh, very, very successful uh, you know, outcome benefits. Brent Bravo, as we mentioned earlier, the Brent Bravo project between the three principal parties, the contract uh, uh, arrangement was uh, basically a reimbursable contract with an opportunity for additional uh, margin gain by both wood and and stock technical services through a register of KPIs. Okay. And how does that work then? Well, the KPIs are established to uh, identify and, and align with, you know, some of the uh, the objectives, you know, time saving, cost saving, and, and just general uh, behavioural performance in support of the collaboration. And on that particular project, Shell, on a monthly basis, you know, sat down with um, both of the other parties and scored the uh, performance against KPIs, and there was an additional, you know, sort of small percentage available to each of those parties in addition to its uh, its, its, its normal uh, reimbursable margin. Okay. Do you think that there is any challenges to, to working in this type of environment, though, with the project collaboration? Um, I, I think so, Michelle. I think there are, there are some big challenges. It's, it's early days. It's not uh, a particularly comfortable uh, path for a lot of organisations to be taking. But I think we're rapidly getting to the stage where if we don't actually look for, um, you know, different ways of, um, of working to deliver, uh, you know, these challenging energy transition projects successfully, then uh, we aren't going to actually deliver, um, you know, deliver to the, uh, the timescale that's expected. I think there's a lot of uh, interest, not just within the UK, but there's a lot of global interest growing. I think in um, you know sort of taking a collaborative approach. I've just been fin- I've just finished drafting some training materials for uh, ECITB, which it's intended to actually put on uh, the training board's learner experience platform as a as an e-learning package. And the training package actually contains references to some of the uh, work that's been going on in North America and Canada and Australia around you know, collaboration and uh, partnering and alliancing. Uh, a lot of it has to be said is um, targeted at the built environment and infrastructure uh, projects rather than if you like industrial process plant type projects. Mm. But it's interesting nevertheless that you know, that's the uh, the direction of travel that uh, a lot of uh, countries and organisations in the world, you know, seem to be taking. Okay. So, do you think that it will it will benefit the industry then going forward, especially with the renewables as well? Undoubtedly, yeah. I just think that um, you know, once the industry gets more comfortable with you know the change that is required you know, to take a different direction to the direction that it's, it's, it's got comfortable with, despite the fact that, 
you know, the performance record on um, projects, you know, that have been managed in the conventional way isn't particularly good. An awful lot of major projects have a history of overrunning budget, you know, taking far too much time and, you know, not not by small margins. A lot of them actually exceed budget by, you know, a very, very high percentage and, uh, you know, take a, a lot of, uh, a lot more time than, you know, was originally planned. So despite that track record, there's still resistance, I think, to moving in the direction of, you know, sort of uh, collaborative approaches. But there's now a body of evidence, I think, that we that we have through case studies that we've developed from, you know, projects that have worked with um, you know, the likes of the uh, collaboration toolkit to suggest that it's, um, you know, it's it's a, a different way of working, which is which is certainly worth, you know, sort of further adoption. But do you think it is? I was going to say, do you think it is realistic to say that that projects can come it within budget and on time? I mean, a lot of this, some do, a lot of them don't. I mean, I've been a project worker for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of them do overrun for various different reasons, but a lot of them do come in in time as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that, that's quite right, Michelle. Some do and some don't, but. Uh... I think the um, you know the percentage split on uh, conventional projects isn't isn't particularly uh, encouraging. You know a lot a lot of course you know the different reasons for uh, sort of projects not uh, you know succeeding in terms of you know sticking the budget and schedule. But many major projects, of course, probably go into the um, you know the delivery phase without being adequately scoped. So there's a lot of emergent scope and, and change that actually gets in the way, you know, requiring more time and requiring more money. So, so yes, I mean, I accept that, um, you know, some conventional projects are successful, but I just think that this different way of working actually just addresses the balance between the number of projects that will succeed and the number that uh, might fail. They're probably more resource efficient because, in general, if you're working in an integrated um team environment you're probably using less human resource than you would uh, require on a conventional project Mm. and i think given the challenges that um you know we're facing in energy transition and of course there's a lot of other stuff going on in other industry sectors as well there's going to be a shortage i think an overall shortage of qualified project and engineering construction resource um, you know not just in the uk but you know Probably throughout the um, throughout the world, yeah. No, I think that I think that is right. I think there is more, less and less people coming into the into the energy sector as a as a whole, actually, especially in engineering, actually. Yeah. Yep. But do you really think that it can help define a good a good feed? Because sometimes you can go into feed with the, all the best intentions and you're wanting to, you think you know your design, but then some way down the line, you might think that your design of what you originally wanted to design might have to change. And then you, it would almost be like you would have to then change to go, to go backwards again, to almost mm-hmm. start from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, some, some projects are like that, Michelle. So I think you're quite right to point out that, you know, in some cases, you know, even though you believe you've actually done a good job in feed, you know, there's a requirement to do an iteration because, uh, you know, something will, something will happen 
which will require, you know, an element of emergent scope might, uh, you know, might occur that requires a, a change in direction, you know, in the way that the project moves into, uh, you know, moves into execution. So, so those are very real issues, I think. And collaboration probably won't solve those. I think, I think what collaboration would do in those circumstances is get all of the parties looking for the most expedient uh, way to move the project forward. So you wouldn't get, for example, you know, a contractor in a collaboration necessarily looking to make capital out of um, a change in direction or a change in scope. I think the evidence is that successful collaborations actually get people thinking very uh, creatively and innovative in an innovative way to look for, um, you know, the most appropriate solutions for the project rather than the most appropriate solutions for themselves. Okay. But then I thought in a project that you were, especially all the projects that I've ever worked on, that you'd always, you always have to work for as a team for one gain for the, for the benefit of the company and the benefit of the project that you're working on. Well, I think in an ideal world, that's the case, uh, Michelle, but it doesn't always happen. So I've had experiences of, you know, sort of projects where organizations have actually uh, tendered you know, for, um, you know, part of the work score. They've been hungry for the work and they've probably submitted what I would refer to as a, a heroic bid. So to win the work, they've actually, um, you know, cut the, um, you know, the price to the bone and the expectation that if they secure the work, they'll then be able to make capital out of um, changes in the, in, in the work score, you know, to get uh, the opportunity to recover some of the margin. And those kind of things, those kind of practices have, have hampered performance, I think, you know, across projects in the sector for quite some time. You've probably seen it yourself, I would guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have done. But do you think that that's ever really going to go away, though? I would like to think that if it doesn't go away altogether, that there's a more realistic approach to, um, you know, satisfying the needs of all of the uh, organisations that support project delivery without kind of taking a win-lose approach and, if you like, taking up a position of, um, you know, ultimate self-interest, because that's what it amounts to, you know, one organisation looking after its own interests to the detriment of um, of others that are involved. Okay. Okay. So which type of project do you actually think is more benefit, a lump sum project or a more conventionally funded project then? Well, I think... Um, Lump sum arrangements, of course, are transactional, uh, and they have their place. So I would expect that um, you know lump sum uh, fixed price contracts uh, apply to projects that have a very very clearly defined scope, very low risk of you know scope change, a clear understanding between the client, the you know project lead entity, and whoever the contracted party is. You know, those, those arrangements are absolutely fine. I think the evidence is that complex projects with complex work scopes, lots of organizations, lots of stakeholders involved in the delivery, you know, those kind of projects are probably, um, you know, better served by an approach which is more collaborative. So, you know, fixed price arrangements in those um, circumstances never going to encourage the kind of, um, you know, working together one team approach that you'd really like to see on a project, you know, which has all of the parties aligned to a single set of objectives. 
Does that answer? It does. So would you be able to work in the project collaboration under a fixed term budget? I think difficult because, um, you know, having said that, you know, collaboration is all about relationships and behaviours and fixed price, you know, lump sum arrangements being, you know, transactional really don't give, you know, the kind of opportunities to um, develop those relationships that you would really want. Having issued the uh, the toolkit and seen it work uh, in the years since 2016, when it was being launched in its second edition in 2020, myself and a guy who is currently the chair of the European Construction Institute identified a bit of a gap, I think, in the availability of a a type of contract that would ideally suit multiple parties working in a collaborative environment. So we, we went to work in 2020, 2021 and developed an agreement which goes under the title of the Collaborative Working Agreement. It's based upon some of the content and some of the principles that are set out in the collaboration toolkit, but it really is a kind of multi-party you know, collaborative framework which is set around a number of foundational principles that you know all of the parties are signing up to collaborate to achieve a common set of objectives. That's actually set out in the contract itself, and that's starting to actually uh, see some use, you know, in parts of the industry. It's available through the European Constru- Construction Institute, you know, by application. I think through the uh, you know the institute's website. So that's the kind of uh, agreement and. There are other frameworks, you know, alliance and partnering frameworks that could be used. But uh, those are the kind of arrangements, I think, that um, contractually better suit uh, collaborations rather than the, um, you know, fixed price, lump sum, uh, transactional type contracts. Okay. It was amazing talking to you, actually. It's a really interesting topic that I think that will benefit a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure it is, uh, Michelle, and I think your line of questioning was very good because there'll be lots of people, you know, in our industry at the moment who are quite sceptical about this. This is this is all about, you know, people and organisations who are, if you can, if you, if you like, locked in the present culture. And it's very, very difficult to change that, you know, that, that, that culture. So, you know, I, I believe and I, I've... I've seen enough about um, the application of the toolkit to know that uh, collaboration has its place. It isn't a solution to everybody's problems, but I think the more projects, the more complex major projects that apply collaborative strategies, the better, I think, because it generally does sort of load the, um, the platform for success. I think so too. I think so too, actually. That's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Tony for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.